Welcome to Different from the Other Kids, a weekly podcast for parents of challenging children with your host, Angela Sunis, author of the Amazon best-selling book, Different from the Other Kids. Each week, Angela interviews an individual or professional within the mental health community. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Different from the Other Kids. I'm Angela, your host for today. Wanted to start with a report out of the UK, which I think uh, they're beating the same drum as we are at Different from the Other Kids. The title of the article is called Parents Need Lessons for Children's Mental Health. So this came out uh, through the BBC News. Professor John Ashton, outgoing president of the Faculty of Public Health, said children were neglected by some schools and parents. He said the state should help stop children being crippled by conditions such as anxiety, anorexia, and obesity. The FPH has released a report calling for mental health improvements. It says mental, emotional, or psychological problems account for more disability than all physical health problems put together. Although we cannot say yet exactly how much of the burden of mental illness could be prevented, we know prevention is possible. One in 10 children aged 5 to 16 years old had a mental health problem that warranted support and treatment, the report said, and the quality of the child-parent relationship and parenting more broadly played a primary role. Given the huge financial and human cost of mental health problems, more should be done to tackle their causes. He said, we've done well in terms of producing live, healthy babies over the last 60, 70 years. But by the time the children are leaving school, between 10 and 15 percent of them are in trouble emotionally or mentally and suffer from things like obesity, eating disorders, anxiety and stress. Having produced healthy babies, we then set about neglecting them. Professor Ashton suggested parenting advice and support could be provided by investing in existing networks such as health visitors and schools and by using social media to reach parents and setting up 24-7 helplines. Professor Stuart Brown, Sarah Stuart Brown, who produced the report, said diet and activity played a role in mental health, but supporting parenting is key. The first 1,001 days of a child's life are particularly important. Over three quarters of all mental health problems emerge in childhood and adolescence. That has certainly been my experience. Uh, you sign up for parenting, you don't know what you don't know, and all of a sudden a mental health issue exists and you don't know how to parent it. Depending on how severe it is, it can be very important how you parent it within the period of time that things unfold. So there's my little rant for today and thank you BBC News for that. Wanted to introduce you today to a very special guest. Her name is Maria Nunziello. She is the program coordinator of Police Foundations program at Durham College here in Ontario. Let me give you a little background for her. She was Durham Regional Police's first female cadet at 18 years old. She then became an officer at 21. She's worked in all the areas of Durham. She's worked in the road and in the central investigations branch and has spent a lot of time working in victim services. She is a faculty member who also teaches in the Police Foundations program. So, Maria, thank you so much for joining us. Without further ado, here is Maria Nanziella. I started out uh, right from high school, actually, um, joining Durham Regional Police as their first female cadet in 1986, and I spent 18 years with the police department doing a whole host of different careers. 
Um, but I, I specifically found myself being drawn to the vulnerable sector. And at that time, it was in sexual assault and in victim services. I ended up really getting involved in a lot of domestic violence and things like that. And I found myself having an opportunity to do a secondment at Durham College. Uh, and I did that and absolutely fell in love with the job. And I competed for full time at Durham College and I left policing at the 18 year mark. People thought I was crazy, uh, but I definitely went to a great place. I still use a lot of the skills that um, I used in policing, but I am now teaching and I teach a whole host of law enforcement courses as well as I teach all of the first year Police Foundation students their intro to psych course. Basically, the intro to psych course is um, your typical, you know, your learning, your memory, your cognition, things like that. Um, but the best part about this course is we do touch on psychological disorders. And we do anxiety, for example. We do schizophrenia. We do bipolar. Um, we do a lot of related illnesses, suicide, things like that. And it opens up their eyes to what police officers may have to deal with in their line of work. We soon realized that um, one of the vocational skills to become a police officer is community work. So gone are the days where if you played hockey or you're really you know, this big guy, you're going to get hired. Um, that skill set is not seen like it was. So if you have not done work um, of some sort within your community, you will not be hired. So we are looking at mental health and children at risk or youth at risk are two of the biggest things that police are dealing with now. So what they're looking for in interviews is you tell us about your experience. So we want to make sure that our program is mirroring what it is that they're hiring because we're not going to be doing them any favors if we're not. So we really encourage our students to get involved, for example, in an organization called CANARC. Uh, CANARC is uh, working one-on-one -on -one with students with mental health issues, and we really encourage our students to do that. We also have opportunity for them to work at Ontario Shores. There's a psychiatric unit there um, for offenders. And uh, so our students are, are really encouraged to do that kind of work. I implemented something in our program uh, three years ago where I was sitting at my table and I looked at the EQAO results of some of the schools in Oshawa. And I was appalled. Um, one of them specifically was a one out of 10. So I literally picked up the phone and called the principal and said, do you think you could use our help? I have 200 police foundation students a year that their vocational outcome should be working with kids mm -hmm. at high risk. Mm -hmm. And she said, absolutely, come on in. And we basically formed a pilot project where our, our students went in. We had no idea what it was going to look like. Uh, and they just helped. So it was very successful. My boss was very supportive and said, Maria, go for it. And now it is uh, written into a legitimate portion of our community policing course. Mm -hmm. so, so this is kind of on the newer side that yes. this is kind of happening. This is this is evolving as we're speaking. Very much so. Okay, but you're very involved in in putting some of these things into place because yes. this is the first time that it's going to touch some of these people that are trying to become police officers, That's right. right? It is. And in fact, a lot of them I'm, I'm marking the reflection papers right now and a lot of them are saying, "I thought this was a really stupid idea. I had no idea um, what policing would have to do with working with elementary school kids. Mm -hmm. And the question in the paper is, what is your definition of at risk? And what I am hearing is unbelievable. So they're going in, they're seeing kids that really can't learn because of possibly poverty, because of mental health issues, because of very, very young parents, um, not the proper food, learning deficiencies. Um, it is shocking to them. Uh, it's really changed them as people, let alone potential police officers. It's changed them as people. 
It's been it's been wonderful. It's what sets our program apart from probably a lot of the police foundations. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That's that's very cutting edge. That's amazing. Um, okay, so since we're having a conversation with parents, I think that that's amazing that you're actually going to that extent. That's brand new. Um, do you know of it? Are you the the only board doing it right now, or is this something that is evolving across Canada? Is this? Do you have the? Uh, do you know what other police foundations courses are doing? I don't think they are at all. Okay, uh, and, and I'll tell you why. It's it's a hard thing to manage because there's mm-hmm. so many students. We get a thousand applications for about two hundred fifty spots a year. Um, when I went to my boss, who is extremely supportive, and she's a lawyer, she said to me, Maria, you came with energy, and I said, go for it. I was not about to tell you the liability that could be involved with working with kids and things like that. When you have energy, you don't stop it. So we have had, surprisingly, very few issues. We have the students get vulnerable sector criminal record checks, and we get them to sign contracts on their behavior. We do talk to them about uh, boundaries with some of these kids. Mm -hmm. A lot of these kids are very, very high need. They do not get a lot of attention at home, so they will hug the volunteers they will sit on their laps. They will be in constant need of perfection. And I have a very high male population in my police foundations program. And I have to worry about that. Yes. So they're sort of, you know, almost threatened. You, you don't do this. You, you do props. You do high fives. You do not pick up a kid. So I've had to be very strict at the very beginning of the course about what the expectations are. No cell phones. Um, we had one situation. We've had very few. But we did have one situation where one of our students had a cell phone out. He was accused by a grade eight girl of taking pictures of her bum. Oh, now that did not happen. Uh, but again, if you're not, you know, following the rules about what's to happen, this is what the outcome can be. Mm-hmm. We worked through that. It's been great. We've had we've been running now for three years, um, and it's been a wonderful addition to our program. What kind of what kinds of training along these lines uh, do they see uh, before they become a police officer? Well, I can tell you that right now um, the push is on having a lot of police officers have degrees because they're finding, uh, and there's been a lot of studies on this, that police officers who have degrees have less likelihood of using force. Really? Yes. And they've been able to to actually track this. They have less likelihood of being sued. Um, They're able to look at things from a variety of perspectives. Interesting. So I think how they're dealing with a lot of this is on the front end and who they're hiring and being very, very selective with who they're hiring. That's really interesting. Now, that doesn't say a lot for our students, unfortunately, um, just having the diploma. And in fact, the stat is only 5% of students in Police Foundations program will ever be hired. Now, in saying that, um, that is only with the Police Foundations diploma. Uh, We really push our students to do the uh, criminology bridge Mm -hmm. and go right into third-year criminology at UOIT. And that is a great mix. So you've got the two-year Police Foundations diploma. With the two years of university, you've got the practical with the theoretical. You've got a whole bunch of former police officers behind you, and those kids do very, very well. We have something called Coast, and that is you call Coast specifically. They actually have a hotline number, and they will come, and there's a plain Coast police officer. So you know that the situation is secure and safe at that point, and then they have um, a psychologist that comes. We are in all police departments. This is something that we have to be doing as a police service. And I know that we have uh, mental health resource officers that are on the platoons. So basically that is um, officers who have just a little bit more specialized training in working with mental health so that they're on the road all the time. So perhaps if there was a mental health call, that officer would be dispatched as opposed to another officer. However, we do have um, 
a mental health operational unit, which is like you were saying, where it has a police officer, plain clothes, has psychiatric nurse, and um, they would attend maybe a higher risk call. Now, there's not a lot of those units around, though. Right. That's the problem. Um, Halton is the same. I think we have one unit that works a 10 or 12-hour day, um, and there's only a set of two of them right. for, the whole, for the whole district. That's right, yep. So, so it's the same. Is this something, though, that is happening? Do you, do you have any knowledge of it happening in other areas of uh, Ontario or Canada? Um, I do know that, uh, just getting back to on-the-road stuff, that what they're trying to do is add mental health education to every aspect of policing. So, for example, the general um, investigative technique course, which is basically how to investigate. They are bringing in things like suicide prevention into that course. That Mm -hmm. never happened before. Mm -hmm. So they're trying to touch every piece of education with mental health. I guess that the the hard part um, from somebody outside looking in, and I have a a mentally ill uh, child, but I'm looking at it from a police uh, perspective as well. And exactly exactly how educated does a police officer have to be to be uh, released into the field. There's part of me that wonders um, whether the the coast side of things is more the way to go with a police officer there. Are we asking too much of the police to be that well-educated in what our uh, kids are dealing with? Um, when the police are in, often they're in a very dangerous uh, situation and they're trained to keep us safe. Uh, they're not really trained in mental illness, and I understand that maybe they need a little bit more training, but at what point are we going to allow them to police and not be uh, experts in mental health? That's a great question. Um, it's, a, it's a difficult line because we are trained um, at the police college and then yearly after on our national use of force model. And I can tell you that if you the public were aware of this, which they're not, unfortunately, um, they would be very shocked at what we are trained to do and what we are allowed to use. So, for example, um, it is specifically um, said in the use of force model that if we're dealing with anybody who is passive resistant, for example, so this is just basically a subject who is refusing to move with you. We'd like you to leave the bar and they stand still. Mm -hmm. We are allowed to physically remove that person. Mm -hmm. If the person then basically swings their arm, um, we are allowed to pepper spray that individual. And mm-hmm. you can see the matchup here with what behavior is seen and what we're allowed to use. People are shocked by this. So what, what Maria is showing me right here, um, she's pulled something up on a, on a tablet. And we're going to throw it up on the website so that you can see exactly what she's showing me here. And it's basically an infographic breaking down how you go about explain story. So, okay, so this is breaking down here, how, how if you have a cooperative subject, you yes. can see that it's matched with officer presence. Oftentimes just the officer showing up is enough okay. to basically combat the situation. Okay. When you see passive resistance, you can see that you still have communication, which is the use of force that is always present throughout the entire use of force model. So it's always using your voice and trying to get the subject to comply. So I'd like you to leave, get down on the ground. If the subject doesn't comply, you can see that we are allowed to use soft, see the word soft there, which means we can restrain, grab, pull, push. Okay, then we move on to an active resistance subject. And that's a subject who is now, say, flailing the arm, don't touch me, and is refusing to be arrested. As you can see here, I am now allowed to use my physical control, anything beneath it. Mm -hmm. However, as you can see, the orange is introduced, which is intermediate weapons, which means I am allowed to use a taser, Mm-hmm. And I am allowed to use my pepper spray. Mm-hmm. So the public would be shocked to know that a subject 
who is flinging their arm away to say, don't touch me, can actually be pepper spray. Mm-hmm. They really should know what this is allowing the police to do. You move on to an assault, assaultive situation. Now I can use my taser. I can use my pepper spray. I can also use hard weapons. You can see the yellow mm-hmm, interchanging mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. That is my ASP. What's an ASP? An ASP is a baton. Okay. And an ASP is a, a steel um, contractible okay, yes. rod. Yeah. So I think the general public would probably see a video of somebody coming towards me with fist, and I were to bring in a baton and whack them with it as brutality. And in fact, if you look at this, mm-hmm. that is exactly how we're trained. Right. Now, doesn't mean you have to use that level of force. I'm five foot four. I'm a smaller female. I will be using that force. Mm-hmm. I am not going to put myself in a situation mm-hmm. where I'm in fisticuffs with somebody that's larger than me. Mm-hmm. However, this is not publicized enough. Um, and as you see here, you move on to lethal force. And of course, anything with a knife or a gun, mm-hmm. lethal force is what we're allowed to mm-hmm. use. So you can see nothing in here that says, but if the person's mentally ill, <laughs> you, yeah. you have to circumvent this. Do you see what I'm saying? Yes. yes. And I'm not using it as a defense for police because I know there's been some bad things that have happened. But I'm saying that this is how we train our police. Mm-hmm. It's a national use of force model across Canada. Mm-hmm. As you can see here, yes, we have perception in the blue. Tactical considerations, so we're always thinking, well, wow, what do we do now? Uh, you can see in the middle here, it's planned, and you know, the situation's always evolving, so mm-hmm. it may escalate, it may de escalate, mm-hmm. and it means you have to be able to do that with what's happening. Mm-hmm. And you see here that communication is always present, it is the officer's best uh, defense, is your voice. If you're dealing with a subject, though, you're saying, get down on the ground, get down on the ground, get down on the ground, and they have a knife, it, it becomes very difficult. Okay, I'm trying to think about this from a, a parent perspective because I'm trying to think. There are kids that uh, can become uh, quite unruly. Uh, sometimes they get a little psychotic. Is there any way for us as parents to come to the police force to say, you're dealing with a kid that has a real challenge here? I guess the problem is, and what I have a hard time with too, is if somebody, I hate to say it like this, but it doesn't matter if somebody's mentally ill or not. If they're being uh, aggressive and they're dangerous, they're dangerous. Mm-hmm. So there's there's so from a parenting perspective, is there any way for us to can we? I don't know. Is there? Can we go to the staff sergeant and maybe have a conversation to let them know that in this house there is this kid that suffers from this, and maybe there's a different way to deal with it. Would, do you have any advice for... Well, I know that if you ever do have a call to a home and there's a mentally ill person in it, it will be flagged anyways. Okay. Okay. So the next time police visit that house, it will say... Um, so it's flagged when they go out on the call. They're well aware that's that right. this is that police have been dispatched before. That's right, before. Okay. And so it could be V flag, for example. So if there's been a violent episode, um, somebody will be you know, marked V flag. Now that is... Good and bad in a lot of ways because, unfortunately, police may go to a call thinking that there's going to be violence and may, you know, be in a different state of mind getting there. Mm-hmm. Um, but they have to be flagged. Okay. So they're, so they're flagged whether we like it or not. Is there, is there, can you think of any way that parents and families uh, that have people that might be getting into trouble with the police because of their mental state, is there anything that we can do to help inform you before anything happens. I don't know if we can really change anything. I think when when, uh, people are calling 911 themselves, they have lost control of the situation and they are afraid. Uh, So they're calling us to help them usually restrain. Okay. And that's 
that in and of itself lies the problem. So they're afraid of the person in their own home. And so they're asking us to come in because they're afraid. Right. And really, it's difficult to say, come on in, but don't use force. Um, maybe the best thing is to happen is that the person does need to be apprehended. We don't use the word arrest. Mm-hmm. Apprehended under the Mental Health Act. Mm-hmm. And basically, it's a, the qualify for that is that they're a danger to themselves or others. Mm-hmm. And they will be apprehended and brought to a psychiatric unit. Mm-hmm. And perhaps that is the best bet. Now, I know parents don't like to look at that as being an alternative, but in a situation where it becomes dangerous, it probably is the best alternative for everybody. Is this getting frustrating for you as there are more um, events happening with uh, mentally ill people? Is this, you're not doing a lot of policing in some cases now. I know, as a, for instance, in my own case, and um, this is just what happened, when my daughter ended up take, taking, um, she tried to OD and went to school, the police were called. The police couldn't leave her. I think they were there um, until she was seen by a doctor. Is that correct? That's correct. So they were there, um, and she was totally fine, but the police officers weren't allowed to leave, and there were two of them. Um, by the time she got into the hospital, they gave her some charcoal stuff for her stomach or something, and I, um, I got there later than she ingested that, so um, I'm a little fuzzy on exactly what happened. But those officers had to stay there. They're, you know, these are... It's just, I think that that's an excessive amount of time um, for police officers to have to sit with somebody. Uh, I think it was two hours. Um, so I'm kind of wondering here, is our police and hospitals, are they starting to work together at all for somebody to have more responsibility than the other? Because it seems to me at this point, does the hospital have them once they're admitted? For sure. But you guys also, like the, that, there's that line there that... There's almost like I'd love to see a little bit more cooperation for everybody involved to smooth it out. Yeah, it really takes up a lot of time. I've spent upwards of six hours in a hospital under that very same situation. Mm -hmm. And it's difficult because you feel like you're babysitting. Yes. And that you're really not doing anything. And your your time could be spent better outside. Um, So you're listening to your colleagues, for example, being called to more dangerous calls, and you're in a hospital waiting. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you know, I think it's almost bureaucratic. I don't know exactly the reason that justifies the police being there for that long. There has to be a better way. Yeah. Um, perhaps training security. Uh, uh, because it really, it's a security issue. It's really not a police issue. I'd agree um, with you. They do so, have security in the hospitals yeah. uh, that I've, I've seen restrain and I've seen do uh, different things. That's probably that's probably a really uh, great yeah. thought. You're kind of wasting resources by having the officer mm-hmm. just literally wait there. Mm-hmm. For sure. Okay. Is there anything else in knowing that you're talking to parents um, with uh, kids that struggle with uh, mental health? Uh, is there anything that you would like to add from your experience or uh, is there any message that you'd like to give them? Or Well, it sounds odd to be saying this in Canada. However, I will say this. Don't have guns in your house. And Is I that a thing? It, it, well, it is in the States, as we see. Yes, of course. Um, you, you have mental health issues that are pervasive and then you add guns. And that is a recipe for somebody dying. Um, so weapons, things like that. Um, if things are getting out of control and somebody has access, that is our most dangerous call. Okay. Um, so I know that sounds odd to be saying in Canada, but uh, we have seen things like that. Even if they've been locked up or they're apparently properly stored, we've seen precarious situations result from that. Uh, I think, I'm sure you'd agree, having gone through this with yourself, that somebody is only as dangerous as what they can get their hands on. I think we just have to be very careful about our surroundings, what somebody has access to. 
and to inform the police if you are calling. Um, there is no weapons here. Um, she oh. is contained right now. She seems to be okay, but I still think that she's a danger to herself. She's in her room. There's no access to knives. Those are the kinds of things. Thank that you. That's really important. And, and I think that would predetermine how the police are coming in. Exactly. Thank you. That's what I was looking for is to try and help the parents um, help you guys so that we can help the situation. Right. It's the, the, so that we're not plotted against that's one another, right. so exactly. that everybody has a better. That that's a great way to end it. I really appreciate it, Maria. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much. Um, that was really educational. Thanks for listening to Different from the Other Kids, made possible with the support of My Mind Fitness, a holistic approach to a fit and healthy mind. You can find them online at www.mymindfitness.com. Music and editing is a product of Among the Crowd Productions. You can hear more at www.amongthecrowd.ca. We'll see you next week. And now a disclaimer. In general, I, Angela Sunis, am not a doctor, and I certainly don't play one on the internet. I'm a parent, period. The advice from me presented on Different from the Other Kids does not replace advice received directly from a medical health professional. If you think you need help, I do recommend making an appointment with your physician or other appropriate health care provider.